This episode of Is This Working is brought to you by Moo. Moo is the place to go to easily design and print quality business cards, postcards, and stickers. Welcome to Is This Working, a podcast about the messy parts of work. With me, Anna Codrado. And me, Tiffany Philippou. Today, we're talking about money. Yes, and we are thrilled to be joined by Claire Seal, who is the author of Real Life Money, An Honest Guide to Taking Control of Your Finances. Claire is perhaps best known for her anonymous Instagram account, which is at My Frugal Year, which she started last spring as a way to hold herself accountable as she embarked on a journey out of debt. Claire posted a picture of a spreadsheet detailing all the credit card debt that she was in, totaling £25,000. Um, and the account very quickly amassed thousands of followers. Um, I, came, I came across the account quite early on and was blown away by the honesty of it. Um, Claire has since revealed herself as the person behind the account and her first book has just come out. Um, And it's all about the emotional relationship with money, which is something that given that work is how we make money, is something that is really, really important to talk about. And we're really, really delighted to have her on the show today. Yeah, it's a really great chat because if you are struggling with any money issues, which a lot of us are right now, then our chat with Claire is really going to make you feel a whole lot better about it. And there's also a lot that you can take away from the show to improve your relationship with your money too. Before we get into the show and the chat with Claire, first, we've got something very exciting to share, which is that we have got two copies of Claire's book, Real Life Money, to give away to our lovely listeners um, for a chance to um, get your hands on these books. All you have to do is go over to Tiffany's Instagram account, which is at Tiff Philippou, and all of the details are there. There is a post with a picture of the book and you just have to follow the instructions for your chance to win a copy of the book. On with the show. Thank you so much, Claire, for joining us on today's episode. It's really, really brilliant to have you here. Well, or virtually here. Yeah, it's lovely to be virtually here. Um, So, of course, your book is all about money. And as we all know, that the way we make money is through working. Um, So I think to kind of start things off, I think it would be really great to hear from you about how you view the relationship between work and money and salaries and kind of how, how that sort of it's quite a complicated relationship and sort of, you know, would love to hear your, your take on it basically. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really complicated. And, you know, my, my work life has changed sort of beyond recognition over the last couple of years. I, um, just around the time when I started the My Frugal Year account, I changed jobs from uh, a job that I had been in for, sort of just over three years and where I had sort of always felt a little bit sort of underappreciated and um, 
and held back, but where I really loved the work. Um, and then I went to work for a startup, which was just a massive shock to the system. And then shortly after that, I went freelance. So it's sort of, <coughs> sorry. Yeah, it's sort of been uh, a bit of a, a bit of a whirlwind for me, but I think I always felt like the job that I did and my job title and how much I was earning was sort of a, the only thing that defined my success for a really long time. And I think since I've been freelance and sort of learned that you can do a lot of different things to make money, you don't just have to be on one career trajectory your whole life all of that has fallen away a little bit I think that's really interesting I think that's something that I definitely relate to especially what you're saying about the job your job title um not necessarily kind of reflecting you know who you are as a person and sort of how the value that you feel that you bring and I think that's something that's changed for me quite a lot since going freelance because it's not freelancing is almost not just one job or one thing that you do most freelancers have multiple income streams and I definitely feel like my relationship with money and also my worth has changed quite a lot since working for myself yeah I think I you just can define define what you think you're worth so much more and that can be really daunting especially when it comes to setting rates and worrying that you're gonna either undersell yourself or scare somebody off um but it is I've now that I'm used to it I find it quite empowering um and just being able to sort of set your own rates even though it's quite daunting to start with if you're worried about either underselling yourself or scaring scaring potential um clients away um it's you know it it can really be quite empowering because you you see how much your work and your experience is worth it's interesting because when we tie our self-worth to how much we earn what I find tends to happen in jobs is you want more and more and more and actually your self-worth probably would you say it'd be fair to say it almost stays at a neutral state and you're always wanting more or did you more think that when you had a full-time job um how much you earn your self-worth did increase with how much you'd earn oh I think you're definitely right I think you know the it it does it just leaves you sort of perpetually dissatisfied because you're always looking to the next or I was always looking to the next level the next kind of step up in terms of salary the next step up in terms of job title and I think something that I have really learned with regard to money is that actually uh, a, a, a difficult relationship with money like I had can't just be solved with more money. <laughs> um, so I think that unless I had sort of addressed the deeper issues there, um, it would never have mattered how much money I earn. I still would have found myself with this difficult relationship with it and with, um, you know, still sort of letting it define my self-worth and not really feeling any better. 
that was something that I found really interesting in the book where you talked about how um, you spoke to higher earners and found that they struggle with debt just as much as anybody else, um, which I just found really, really interesting because I think there is this misconception that people who are earning more money just automatically must be managing it well as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely believed that for quite a while. I was always chasing a salary that would sort of fund, you know, a nice house um, and, you know, in as much ESOP hand wash as I wanted. But actually, you're so right. Um, Claire Barrett wrote a piece for the Financial Times last year that said that, um, you know, beyond a sort of living wage uh people with who earned a six-figure salary were just as worried about their personal finances as those who were earning right at the the bottom end of that scale so um you know it's it's worth considering as well the fact that the more you earn the more the more you can borrow um so actually people with very high salaries can accrue a lot more debt than people with low salaries and and then especially if you have a shock to the system like this pandemic and you lose your income stream you end up in a very vulnerable position so I think that that financial precariousness is something that a lot of people have no matter how much they earn um it's it's interesting you bring up the um pandemic because i think i'm just thinking about so last week we had Anne helen peterson um on the show who wrote an article for buzzfeed um last week about how she doesn't feel like buying stuff anymore and how the whole economic system and it's she's talking about america but it's very true for us as well is built on debt and people consuming and what's happening now is that's all been and also as a consequence of that how it does tie into work and sort of cheap labor but what's happening now is people either don't want to consume or they're unable to consume because they've lost their jobs and now I think we're re-looking at things such as debt and financial insecurity and how much almost how um risky or sort of tentative every like um what's the word kind of um unstable it actually all was I think yeah I think sort of um it does conjure up in images of a house of cards where um you know the sort of bottom layer has been becoming less and less stable for a while and I think obviously this pandemic is basically like a tornado but it probably would have taken like a light breeze to knock it all down because it, it, it is built on such an unsustainable model and it's it's very difficult to see through the sort of chaos that's going to be left in the wake of all of this because obviously the model does rely on consumption people's jobs you know vast vast numbers of people's jobs do rely on us having this same uh sort of relentless pace of consumption and part of that really is um you know credit and debt you you can see it with things like 
um, Klarna and um, other buy now, pay later schemes where they're sort of the next generation of credit and all of the weight has been taken out of it. It's the, you know, especially if you look on sites that are advertised or that are aimed at younger audiences like ASOS, for instance, the language around that that commitment to debt, which something like Klarna definitely is, um, is so easy breezy. It's like this, you know, it's used as a marketing tool. This top could cost you £30 or it could cost you three times 10 easy monthly payments. Um, and you have to look so hard in the kind of in the pages and pages of literature to find out what the consequences are if you can't pay later, which I think many, many people won't be able to as a result of this pandemic. So, I mean, you could talk about it, about the financial consequences of this for, um, you know, people even just in the UK for hours because it's so complex and everybody's going to be affected so differently. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's it's thrown how unsustainable the model was into really sharp relief, I think. It's, I think also the other thing in um, that I've been thinking about is as I was reading your book and you talk about the different ways that shame manifests in relation um, to how people view money. And one of, one of the um, points you made is that lots of people have shame around not having any savings. And I think that's really kind of pertinent right now because um, I think there are lots of people who feel that they, um, they, they, they feel ashamed for not being able to have prepared better for this crisis, sort of not having savings sort of made them feel that um, this is their fault in a way, which is kind of, um, I guess, and it, you know, it ties back to what you're saying about the language that we use around debt, because, you know, talking about being able to pay back a top in sort of three easy installments, it kind of, and then if suddenly, you know, you're in the middle of those payments and suddenly this pandemic has completely decimated your earnings and then suddenly it's not so easy for you to pay back that, um, those installments and it just feels like it's your fault and, you, you know, it's the, the fault kind of lies solely with you and it just leads to so, so many feelings of, um, of shame and kind of um, like you're the, you're the problem. Yeah, I think, I think that's something that a lot of people are going to be feeling at the moment, whether they're, whether they feel vulnerable in this because they had debt or because they didn't have savings. I think there are any number of ways to be financially precarious and, Obviously, none of us in the public saw this coming. Um, And I think a lot of people were unaware of how serious it was all going to get until quite late in the day. Um, And I would suspect that there are a lot of people who, even back in February, as we were sort of seeing this spread around the globe, would never have imagined that they were going to have lost their job or be furloughed with uh, this massive fear of redundancy hanging over them at the end of it. Um, And I think it's so important for people to remember that this is not a standard rainy day. It's 
something that is you know I it it's I don't want to use the word but I'm going to it's something that is entirely unprecedented in our lifetime um and if you are sort of you know 28 to 35 say we came of age during or shortly after the 2008 crash then there's been brexit and now this you know it's 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 been sort of an era of working that has been defined by a very small gap between um you know wages and living costs and if people especially people uh, you know living and working in cities haven't been able to use that tiny amount to build a sufficient cushion for something as catastrophic as this then that is not their fault i found your instagram post actually quite early on in this all kicking off in the uk where you said that actually extremely comforting because um i just couldn't help but beat myself up for not having prepared for it but then how could I have prepared for it? So it just made me feel a lot better. Um, so thank you for posting that early in the early days. Um, but on a slightly um, different note, just to go back to um, your job that you had before, um, before you sort of went freelance and started writing this book, um, you talk about how your job required you to sell products and kind of create social um ads and you know target marketing and and I remember really vividly you saying that you were good at it as because you were the customer essentially and you were someone who bought a lot in that in that way um and I just thought it was really interesting because when I read that I felt like there was a real tension coming across um and I'm just kind of curious to know how you feel about that job now and whether there was a tension while you were doing it as well and um at the time whether it felt a bit misaligned with your values as well yeah i mean i think a lot of people have to separate what they do for work from their values as a person um you know i think i think that's quite common um and for a for a really long time I really enjoyed the creative side of the job and I I really was sort of very passionate about the the creativity of it and to be honest until I started to unpack all of this sort of like emotional financial baggage that I had myself I didn't really consider what the what the repercussions of um of that quite manipulative marketing were for the consumer um and it's one of the reasons why after a short time in a in a, another marketing job um I found that I needed to leave um because it was for a company who were sort of primarily targeting mums and it was uh it's a low cost product and it's a it you know part of the 
part of the brand was this really brilliant empowering message that was helping people but the the marketing side of it um especially when I knew how vulnerable I had felt as a new mum and how much I had wanted to be part of like a sort of tribe just to feel less alone um it just didn't quite sit right with me um and so that was when I felt like I needed to really start to make changes in my career um especially as my Instagram account started to grow and I started to hear different accounts from different people um I just I knew that it wasn't you know marketing was just not really right for me anymore something that jumped out just from the beginning of what you were just saying is when you said that people have to separate their work from their values I was curious as to what what drives that statement that you made um because I was just curious to delve delve a bit more into why you said that I think that especially people who are working in sort of sales and marketing and you know maybe things that are sort of slightly more um like aggressive than what I was doing in terms of sort of cold calls and um things like that I think uh, you know or, or people who are perhaps working for like debt collection agencies where the language used is very aggressive and there's a campaign from sort of Martin Lewis um that says that um you know this that needs to be changed because it's actually leading to a situation where we've got sort of a hundred thousand suicide attempts per year because of problem debt and fear um but you know I I can't imagine that the people working for those agencies or the people who are aggressively selling in their job that that is who they are as a person you know there are plenty of jobs that we turn our noses up at or don't think are particularly ethical um and I think that it would be wrong to assume that the people doing those jobs are bad people um I mean it's it's very is extending the metaphor to its absolute limits um but you know if you've read um the Chinua Achebe poem Vultures about sort of the the prison guards at uh, Belson who then went home and you know were brilliant family people um it, it everybody I think steps outside of themselves a little bit when they go to work definitely not that much but <laughs> I think it's I mean even if you you know I think back to some I think back to plenty of jobs that I've done where um the sort of mission of the organization was one that did feel very aligned with my values, but then you scratch beneath the surface and there are plenty of practice workplace practices that are happening that did not sit comfortably with me at all. And yet you, you know, it's very hard when, especially when you're at the beginning of your career, because, you know, you can't just quit every job you have because something bad is happening. Um, you know, as in, you know, internal politics aren't, aren't quite as, um, you know, the 
the internal politics aren't quite as great as they should be. Um, and so I think it is really, really important. And I think I found it really interesting when you did talk about how um, often our values are misaligned with what happens at work. And I think on top of all of that, the problem is, is that our, at least sort of in the last few years and very much the millennial generation has been bombarded with this message to do what you love. And so when you're not working in a place that does feel like it aligns with your values, again, it just, it you know, you start to think, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get a job that I love? And there is that kind of expectation that we should be doing work that is fulfilling and changing the world. And at least if not changing the world, at least kind of lining up with our own values. So I think there is also kind of a lot of um, a lot of shame around that as well, sort of a lot of work-based shame that people feel. Um, because the bottom line is that work is how, you know, we all, we have to work because we have to make money because that is how our society functions. And yet at the same time, yes, it would be brilliant if we could all do work that we found super personally fulfilling and really aligned with our values, but that's just not possible for everyone. I think you're so right about that. And I think that there is this sort of, it is verging on snobbery at people who do a job just to pay the bills, even if they're not, you know, 100% passionate about it. I think it's absolutely great if you can find something that you love doing and that uses your talents and your passions and you can make enough money from it but it's also absolutely fine to do a job that pays your bills and then just do the things that you enjoy for the sake of enjoyment you don't have to monetize every talent and every hobby um because for some people actually that 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 like strips the joy out of it um you know I, i think there's there's a sort of i always used to think that for anybody who loved to write, writing a book would be like euphoria with every tap of a key, but it absolutely isn't. You know, I think some for some people who find joy in writing, being an author or a journalist would be an absolute nightmare. Um, so I think it's I think it's about what's personally right for you, um, and you know, I don't I don't really get the sort of snobbery around just doing a job because you need to earn money on that kind of note what I have found is when I've had jobs that maybe I don't enjoy or I don't like them or I don't really believe in what they're doing and I feel a bit maybe sort of disengaged I've noticed how much my spending has gone up to sort of comfort myself um with that and I was just curious maybe um if we could talk about how our relationship with our work does fuel emotional spending and obviously emotional spending is something you really delve into into the book so would love to hear your thoughts on that yeah i think i think it is something where there's probably a really strong correlation and i think it, it is really important not to do something that makes you utterly miserable because um, there's a real difference between you know not feeling super passionate about the job that you're doing and doing something that is essentially ruining your life um, and uh, you know I, I think everybody can or most people can probably identify with that feeling of having had a really awful day at work and then need it like 
do it doing sort of retail therapy almost so either in the form of sort of going out for dinner when perhaps you wouldn't normally and you can't necessarily really afford it or sort of you know online shopping just to sort of stop your brain from thinking about the thing that's really bothering you and I think that 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 can happen with any number of things whether the thing that's really bothering you is work or any number of other things um I think it's it can be a really um sort of strong urge as a distraction and it definitely has been for me in the past I mean when I was um when I was in my sort of previous job not not counting the brief stint at a startup um I definitely dealt with kind of workplace stress or feelings of inadequacy um by spending sometimes um when I, I had a really difficult situation when I was going back to work from my maternity leave with my youngest son and um you know I I definitely sort of bought you know bought some new clothes and stuff like that to try and bolster my confidence going back to what was quite an awkward situation so it definitely I think plays a part in that emotional spending or trying to kind of spend to look the part or trying to you know compensate somehow yeah I remember that story really vividly um because I think we've all been there I'll I'll let I'll let people read the book to find out but but that that kind of because you had a conversation that almost was acted as though it hadn't happened if, if that if I'm correct in thinking that and um yeah I really felt for you during that that story yeah it was um it it was something that was really difficult to write about and I still find you know I, I find most things about um you know our sort of financial journey to use another word that I don't really like um quite easy to talk about by this point but that is something that I still found very difficult because it felt I think there's something uniquely humiliating about being finally given some recognition and then having it taken away um and that was what happened and it didn't it didn't really matter then how many successes I had when I went back to work um, because there really were a few. It, it, things were not ever going to be the same again. I think when you lay it out like that, it definitely what comes to my mind is um, it becomes really easy for me to see how, where emotional spending comes from because if I think about it in my own circumstances whenever I um, I used to do this really when so Tiffany and I both used to live in New York together and um, I used to do this thing where I'd have a really difficult uh, week at work and then um, on my way home there was this um, well essentially an equivalent of a boot so it was I think it was a Dwayne Reed which is a drugstore and I would just go in there and just like mindlessly buy lipsticks um, on a like Friday night because the shops were also open really late in New York. So I would like come home and I probably would have like stopped off at a bar on the way home for after work cocktails. Um, and then 
go into the Dwayne Reed and just like buy loads of lipsticks. And it was just that thing of kind of like, you're not, you don't feel great at work and you know, you feel undervalued. So you're sort of scrabbling around to try and find some control somewhere. And you sort of like, and I, I lulled myself into the false sense of security that that control could be found in the lipstick aisle of Dwayne Reed at like 10 PM on a Friday night. Um, and it's just that thing where it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm not being recognized, but what I can do is I can buy this new top or this lipstick or this eyeshadow or whatever it might be. And I can like make myself feel better by sort of putting on the, putting on these kind of like external markers of my confidence or success or whatever it might be. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's really, it's a really difficult thing. And it's also just the emotions that underlie it all are so hard. I mean, you know, your, your book is basically about shame and we've spoken about shame a lot on this podcast because one of our icons is Brene Brown, um, who you reference in the book, the, um, the, um, the researcher. Um, and, um, and like, as she says, and as anyone who, has ever tried to confront the emotion of shame it's it's a really really hard and uncomfortable and just awful thing to feel do you know what your story Anna reminds me of is um that expression which is dress for the job that you want which is so much about kind of I don't know, like almost putting on that lipstick that you've bought from Dwayne Reed and trying to visually, you know, buy stuff to kind of get noticed. And it's such a, it's such a slogan or phrase that seems to be more aimed at women as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And there's also something, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is not a therapy session for why I was, um, you know, my <laughs> lipstick addiction, um, which is funny because I just wear the same lip balm now. Um, take from that what you will. But um, there was also something in the fact that I was do- buying these lipsticks in Dwayne Reed. And there was part of me that was like, I need this bold red lipstick, but I don't want to, but I want it to be, I don't want to spend too much money on. I, I kind of wanted like a volume of lipsticks rather than, you know, I wasn't going and buying one really expensive lipstick. I was buying loads of cheap lipsticks. Um, but anyway, I'll stop talking That's about that really now. That's really interesting. Um, should we talk about why, not that I'm judging you for your lipstick purchases, but why we are so judgmental about <laughs> other people's money issues. Cause I think that's a huge source of the shame that we feel is the judgment of others. Yes. No, I think judging other people about how they spend their money is, is huge. And I, if I'm really honest with myself, I, I have been on my own journey over the last few years to try to kind of, um, address all the things that I do that aren't great. And I've got on my own self-improvement journey. However, the one thing that I just, um, I'm trying, I try really hard to at least recognize when I am being a judgmental person and I try hard not to, but the one area where I just really cannot help but be judgmental is around money and how other people spend their money. Um, and I heard a story in our kind of extended social circle about someone who, um, uh, sort of tr- in trying to keep up appearances is very much kind of spending way outside of their limits and um, like has to borrow money from from friends and all of this stuff. And my reaction to it was I was just so judgmental of this person. And I mean, that, there's, that's a lot of work I need to do on myself as to why I'm like that. But um, Clara, I'd love to hear from you about um, 
you know, what you've learned about why we are so judgmental of each other's money issues and, you know, why do we judge people so harshly about, you know, how, you know, whether or not they're in debt or why they don't have savings or, you know, whatever it might be, like, where does that come from and why do we do it? I think quite a lot of it comes down to sort of, uh, like lack of understanding and communication, because I think that, you know, definitely, I mean, sort of I as someone who uh, like has been in that sort of situation of like spending beyond my means still hear stories that sort of make me raise my eyebrows. I think all of us do um, sort of have that natural like urge to judge if it's not something that we would do ourselves. Um, and I think that that's particularly kind of evident in the um, disparity between sort of millennials and what you would call like the boomer generation, um, because the the circumstances have been so different. And I, you know, since I sort of put my name and face to this and started doing interviews and whatever for the book, I've faced so much judgment, um, you know, in sort of the comments that you're not supposed to read at the end of articles and people who've texted into radio shows that I've been on. Um, and, you know, it obviously it, it hurts to hear those things said about you, but at the same time, it gives me, you know, it sort of reinforces my ideas that um, there is a reason why people are too ashamed to talk about this. Um, and, I think that anybody who is spending so far beyond their means that they're having to sort of borrow incessantly from friends and family and that they've lost sight of how damaging that is to their relationships and to their, um, you know, own financial situation, there has got to be something more going on, whether it is simply the fact that they, their self-worth is so low that they think that it relies on you know that their worth relies on material possessions or flashy holidays or whatever or whether it's something that goes much deeper I think that there aren't very many people who are willing to talk about the emotional side of personal finance and overspending and I also think that there is you know women are in this sort of weird triple binds of we don't we're not paid as much uh, you know still um in general and then we're sort of targeted relentlessly with um you know all of these things to fix all of these imaginary problems that we have like our hair's wrong or our thighs are too fat or you know we've got hair in the wrong places or whatever um and then there's the third thing which is that there's still this sort of idea of the frivolous woman who spends all of her money on shoes and handbags that we all have to rail against. And that's the sort of, you know, the sort of internal voice for a lot of women whenever they do choose to treat themselves to something, even if they can afford it and they feel they deserve it. So it's very complicated. <laughs> but I think that the answer has to be for more people to be able to speak about why they spend the way that they do and why they are in the situation that they 
are in and that's why it was important to me to talk about this yeah there was a um you had a passage in the book where I think it was um you'd interviewed someone or someone had sent you um it was maybe a message someone had sent you about a conversation they were in with friends about how one someone in the friendship group was saying they would never date someone who was in debt and that that was a deal breaker and how irresponsible and all of this kind of stuff and what it, what it says about them and that person was standing there in huge amounts of debt and they said that they didn't feel able that they could say anything because of just how judgmental those comments were and how harsh and how black and white they were. Um, and that kind of really sort of gave me pause for thought and made me think about all of the flippant comments that I or sort of anyone makes about money and kind of passing judgment about people's money situations and just not thinking that there might be someone standing there who is in that very, very situation. But because of the fact that no one talks openly about money, can't, we don't know that and they don't speak up and you have no idea what comments what what the impact the comments you're making have on them so basically it's definitely made me think twice before um before speaking so harshly um about people or not necessarily about i would never speak harshly about someone kind of to them but um just trying to be more aware of the impact that the sort of the comments we make just in everyday conversations and the sort of chats we have with friends that you just don't know what's going on for someone with um, or in their bank account, basically. Also in, um, in your book, Claire, there was a bit about, because I think it's all about tying our self-worth, both with regards to how much we earn, but also spending money. And I'm just, another bit that stood out for me was when you talked about buying overly lavish gifts for people. Um, and I've, I, that's something I think I used to do. Um, I actually had to, I, I literally can't do it now because I earn so much less these days, but, um, I'd never thought about that being a sort of way of almost being like, please like me, but, (laughs) um, and again, it's that kind of, I think because our self-worth is so tied to money and what we earn, it's just such an emotionally charged territory for us. And I think the challenge is trying to remove that emotion from the equation. Um, but I wanted to ask what does financial security mean to you now, Claire, and how would you define it? I think for me, there are two elements, the first of which I'm sort of feel like I'm pretty much there with. And the second of which, you know, we're still a little way off. Um, the first is feeling in control. And it is literally all, all it is, is knowing how much is coming in, how much is going out, how much is left over, and what you're going to do with it. And, you know, it took me quite a while to get there, but I feel like I'm finally there. And actually, it, I feel that it, it doesn't matter where you are. It, it, you know, if you have debt, it doesn't matter where you are in the sort of process of paying it off. If you, if you have that feeling of control, then it stops ruling absolutely everything in your life and everything that you think about yourself you know I I had absorbed that 27,000 pounds into into my ideas of who I was and now it's something separate that I feel I have control over 
Um, and the other thing is that I think that sort of credit and borrowing is not necessarily always awful and it is sort of a part of everyday life or it has been. Um, and so things like spreading the cost of a holiday on a credit card or paying for a, a big purchase with finance or financing a car um, or whatever don't necessarily have to be bad things so I think that for me it's not the sort of debt-free status that I covet or I'm aiming for but it's one of being net positive so where you know what we have in terms of assets outweighs uh what we have in terms of debt um and I'm hoping to be there sort of by sometime near the end of next year might be a bit sooner might be much later depending on what happens um with uh the pandemic and my husband's job and my work and stuff but I think um the fact that I have the first one means that the second one uh you know is the the weight of it is a bit less um so yeah miles away from where I was this time last year definitely um if there is one thing that anybody listening to this could do today to improve their relationship with money, what would that be? I think, I mean, I touched upon it just a moment ago, but I think that doing the work that you have to do, and it is it's big and it can be really painful um, to extract your financial situation from your self-worth and to see it as a part of your life rather than something that rules over all of it or something that's sewn into your identity um, and to feel sort of money neutral. So see it as a tool for you to build the life that you want rather than something to be, you know, amassed or uh something to be spent with reckless abandon I think you're well on your way to having it having that financial control that is really important um and I think that that takes a long time it's not a quick fix there isn't a magic bullet but I really think that most people would be much happier if they could do that. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Claire. Before we wrap up or say goodbye, could you tell everybody where, we, where they can find you? Yeah, so you can find me um, on Instagram at my frugal year and on Twitter the same, but I don't really put out the same sort of stuff on twitter it's more just for chats but you can say hello on there um and then you can find my book uh hopefully maybe one day in an actual bookshop but um otherwise uh online at waterstones or hive or um amazon if you want to add to jeff bezos's trillions um and it's also on audible and kindle and we will put a we'll put some links to order the book in the show notes as well Amazing. so thank you thank very you. much claire it was brilliant chatting to you thank you so much for having me thank you bye
Thank you to Moo for sponsoring Is This Working? Whether you're a big business or a freelance creative or even just for fun, Moo is the place to go to easily design and print quality postcards, stickers and business cards. Now is a great time for design and printing so that you can hit the ground running when you get back out into the world. Lots of people will also be using this time to finally kickstart their creative careers. We've got 20% off at Moo for listeners of Is This Working? Simply enter the code IsThisWorking at the Moo.com website for 20% off your order. We'll also add that code into the show notes.